0: Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 111. What are the differences between the various Python game frameworks? Would it help to see a couple game examples across several libraries to understand the distinctions? This week on the show, Christopher Trudeau is here, bringing another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We discussed a Real Python article by previous guest John Fincher, titled Top Python Game Engines. John compares five different game frameworks and provides thoroughly commented example projects for each. We talk about a blog post by recent guest Adam Johnson about determining if a project is well-maintained. He suggests 12 questions to decide whether to add a new dependency to your project. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including a news roundup, Python decorator patterns, finding the smallest and largest values with min and max, a discussion about the most used Python packages, the Pony Object Relational Mapper, and a project to read PEPs in your console. This episode is brought to you by CData Software, the easiest way to connect Python with data, SQL access to more than 250 cloud applications and data sources. All right, let's get started. The Real Python podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey Christopher, welcome back. Hi there. We're back doing a little bit of news this week. The first story I have is about the release of the first beta for Python 3.11. So that includes sort of a feature freeze and there are going to be four planned beta release previews before the actual release of Python 3.11 in October. The main reason I'm mentioning it is it's just, it's really strongly encouraged to, if you're a maintainer of any kind of third party project to make sure that you test your code with 3.11 during this beta phase and report issues found and to the Python bug tracker just to make sure everything's working and looking good. There are a whole bunch of peps that we've talked about already. I'm not going to relist them, but I have a link to the article that includes, it's like about nine or 10 of them. And then there's actually kind of a cool little update about the faster C Python project and how it's already yielding some exciting results. And I have... links kind of connected there one for the faster c python project with a whole list in order of like the different packages and how much faster they're going so your results may vary depending on what you do and what libraries are being used but it it shows a speed up of all but two of them (laughs) and the only two that are slightly slower it's like A very small amount of slowdown um, for these couple, and everything else is sped up quite a bit. And I think the overall was something around an average of 1.2x, 1.22x on the standard benchmark. So looking good for a first kind of bump up again, potentially 10 to 60% faster than Python 3.10. If you're not following along on the releases, this is a good way to catch yourself up, see what's going on, and then. Last year I had Joanna Jablonski on and we talked about the Python language summit. Well, that did occur again at PyCon. And this year, Alex Waygood was the reporter writing up all the different things that happened. And he has, one of the more interesting things that has been news is this project by Sam Gross, which is called NoGill. That conversation kind of continued. He's been working on it a lot more he has offered some potential changes in his initial proposal like ways that they could approach doing a sort of a no-gill version of python he's still working on python 39 i think he is currently it's on like 3910 and i think the idea behind that is to make sure it works across like you know a really large amount of the different software that's out there running python and his new idea is to maybe instead of having a runtime flag, to have a compiler flag that can re- reduce the risk inherent in the proposal. In his quote, is you have more of a way to back out. Additionally, using a compiler flag avoids thorny issues concerning preservation of C ABI stability. So, anyway, if you're interested in kind of following along with those couple projects, a little bit of news happening there, not only with the release but progress with faster c python and the the project happening there and there was an announcement at pycon from the team working on faster c python and they really would like you to run your code (laughs) and let them know if you're seeing you know results one way or the other they just need more people to run and and check this stuff out so the faster c python is project i'll have a link for that too it's kind of they keep developing things onward beyond this feature freeze that is for 3.11. And so as they continue to do that, they, they would love to have people try out other stuff with it.
1: What were the couple of news things that you had? Oh, there's three little items here. The first of which is on the same kind of topic of performance improvements, and that's uh, PEP 6.90. And it proposes lazy imports. So right now, when you start up your Python script, it imports everything. So every import that you have runs all the imports that it has. And, you know, it's turtles all the way down. It just keeps importing everything. Yeah. And as the proposal's name implies, the idea is to allow for the interpreter to wait until the import's being used before importing it. So the first reference to a function or a module would actually trigger the underlying import so this would only be for top level imports so if you those things that are at the top of the files so if you do something inside of a class or a function it would trigger immediately and the feature would be off by default and enabled by a dash l flag or environment variable if it's implemented they suspect it could do a lot for startup speed of more complicated programs because you just you wouldn't be paying an import tax on every module in the program just the immediate script nice that sounds
0: cool i could see how Depending on the different functions and things that you're approaching with your code, that maybe only a little area, you know, that's maybe not often used, uses a particular module. Like, okay, now we're going to do PDF output export or something like that.
1: Yeah. And quite frankly, like uh, when they start, to, you know, it's great that they're speeding it up. Don't get me wrong. I love that they're speeding up Python because that's one of Python's bad reputations. It's slow. Right. But the one that I find impacts me the most is really the startup time. Okay. Because I'm not, and I think it's common, I'm not doing a lot of really complicated things in Python. The The expense isn't, you know, once the program's running, I have no problem. It just runs because it's not a lot of throughput and a lot of the work I'm doing. But the sitting there watching it think about doing something as it starts up is there's a little stab in the ribs every time it runs something. <laughs> so uh, if they can uh, do something about that, that'd be great. Yeah, that sounds like a, a great proposal. Uh, the other two pieces are a couple of conferences, uh, Django conferences, one for the U.S. and the other for Europe. So DjangoCon Europe this year is in Porto, which is Portugal's second largest city. The event is September 21st to the 25th. The deadline for proposals is soon. It's May 31st. So if you're listening to this on the day the podcast is released, you still got a couple of days to get something in there. DjangoCon US is in San Diego, California this year and runs from October 16th to the 21st. The call for proposals is on now. Their site's a little vague about the deadline, uh, but they are offering travel grants for some presenters and those grant proposals are due by June 10th. So I'm assuming the general call for papers is around that time as well. Those both sound like fantastic places to come visit. (laughs) i've san diego's beautiful and portugal's on the bucket list so yeah it uh it might be a good thing
0: awesome yeah the guys from g.com europe were on the show a a little while ago and it's nice that they were able to keep it there and open everything goes smoothly toward a in-person conference for them this time that takes us into articles my first one is a real python one it's by john fincher He was the second guest on the program, and we were talking about games. And so, hey, guess what? This one's about games. And it's an article he's been working on for quite a while. It's called Top Python Game Engines. He took it upon himself to do a real survey across the landscape of sort of Python game engines and and tools. And the whole goal of the article is to help you understand the pros and cons of several of these things and get an idea of what they look like. And he provides two examples for every single one of these tools. The first one is a super, super simple example, and both have really great documentation that you could almost kind of use as a template, like here is where you put this, and here is where you should think about this, and so forth. And these programs are not really long, except for (laughs) it's probably about half documentation so something to think about there and the simple example you are basically creating like a window creating a few graphical elements like a square and a couple other items in there sort of individual sprites if you're familiar with the term and then text also setting up a loop displaying the graphics and then also having a way to quit so real simple but Again, fundamental stuff you need to know in each one of these engines and know what that sort of, if you will, boilerplate kind of looks like. Then he makes a more complete game. It's still a simple game. It does have controller input, which is a, a nice add, which you, you need to understand. In this case, he's using a mouse. And you could use other things, modify it to be keyboard or whatever. So it's, again, a good jumping off point. He starts to do sound. So there's, uh, that's something that's not always covered in a lot of tutorials. So that's kind of nice that He's covering how to do that. And then he also has a, a tool in the game where it increases difficulty as you go. In this case, it's you're sort of collecting coins with a, a sprite character as you move it around with the mouse. And eventually, these coins are appearing so fast that you can't collect them. And, the, you know, the idea is to get your high score on that. So he starts with Pygame, which is what uh, Christopher and I have both done courses on. I did kind of a very basic course but going really deep into the fundamentals of pi game um, that you can check out and i might include one of the two of them as the video course sp- spotlight this week and then you did one on asteroids that was by pavel Fertek that you were able to take and turn turn into a video and so i don't want to spend too much time on that it's probably the library we've talked about the most it's the one that's been i think perchance around the longest In my opinion, one nice thing about it is it really has stabilized, at least for me, over the last two years. Um, When version two was sort of coming out, it was a little buggy, especially on the Mac platform. And now with version 2.12, which is the version that you sort of pinned here, it's working great. It's even working great on my new laptop, um, which is uh, using M1. Pygame, what's there to say about it? It's it's been around a long time. It's a, a very good library for doing this sort of stuff. There's lots of examples. I mentioned that book a couple uh, episodes ago, Pygame 4000. That's a nice additional resource there. And again, the whole goal of the article is to see the engines in action, see the code, understand and compare what it's like to write in each one of these, and then learn about you know just what's available in them. And why should you write a game in Python versus writing it in something like unity and unreal or some of these other like dedicated engines. And what it comes down to is that, you know, you probably like writing Python. That's why you're listening to this show. And this is an opportunity for you to kind of explore that in, in games. And there's no reason that you couldn't jump off into some of these other engines, but they're kind of slightly different focus. And in a lot of ways you're, abstracting even more of the programming away and that, that's something else i want to get, get into as we go is like there's these sort of abstraction layers that you could kind of build up the second engine that it talks about is called pygame zero which is based on pygame but it is designed to kind of simplify a lot of things you are not having to create a game loop which is nice it's already there it already has an event model to handle drawing updating input handling there's standardized or uniformed image and text sound handling so it kind of helps to structure a little bit more of that stuff than what Pygame comes with by default. And so it reduces the code almost like, mm, I don't know, 30% in a lot of cases, design more towards education and sort of accessibility and, you know, kind of geared a little more toward beginning programmers where you can kind of focus a little more about game design and some of the fundamentals of, of programming in it. I've used it. It, Runs really similar to Pygame in in a lot of ways. Um, I've seen a couple different sort of gaming sites where the the examples where they might take like classic arcade games, and they they seem to prefer to use Pygame Zero for their examples because of, I think, some of the reasons I mentioned there that it sort of abstracts a lot of the other stuff and you can kind of focus on more about the design of the game and programming that part. The next one that he gets into is Arcade, which he actually did a really great article and tutorial sort of step-by-step project on how to make a platform game in arcade. Arcade is by primarily Professor Paul Craven. Somebody I may try to get on the show to talk more about game stuff. Arcade is more modern. It supports OpenGL, it has type hinting, it has frame-based animation, it has its own built-in physics engine for doing things like you know shootem ups and or other like platform kind of dynamics that you'd want where you don't have to program all that stuff in or or potentially import one in it's got a lot better documentation as far as like it's all sort of gathered together and includes tutorials in it and then has a little more consistency in the naming of commands and functions and parameter names and things like that so it's nice to really compare all these things like i said between these three sort of primary, if you will, video game engines. And then he (laughs) wraps it up talking about two uh, kind of other potential directions you could go with a game. And they're both kind of geared around adventure games. The first one is literally called Adventure Lib, and you're building a text adventure, um, sort of interactive fiction. If you've ever heard of Zork or, gosh, I'm trying to think of some names, the other ones, the, the original... Cave, colossal cave and, and some of these other things where you would be presented with, you know, a, a pop-up saying you're here
1: in a cave and exits are to the north and east and the west. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on the Commodore VIC-20. I believe I'm dating myself.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I played some of these games myself and i had gone to the back of magazines and typed them in. I think I talked about that with Al Swigert. And what's nice is Adventure Lib is... Helping you structure all that sort of stuff. Like it has elements already built into it the the concept of a room, the concept of possessions, and the concept of of a parser and and so forth. And so that's kind of nice. That could be sometimes the hard part if you are just wanting to create a game. And it's not that you couldn't abstract even or do even more advanced things with Python on top of it. So um, in this case, he's made two little adventure games. Um, One, Again, very simple. And the next one, a lot more advanced in the sense that there's a lot more kind of going on and, and like lots of steps that you have to kind of follow to accomplish it. And you have to meet a couple people and have them help you through the the course of the text adventure. And then the other one is called Ren Pi, which I don't know if we've talked about it, but it's built on top of Pi game. There's sort of this style of a visual novel that that's kind of another uh, genre of video games that's out there where, uh, it's presented as like kind of graphical, almost like a text adventure with like sort of slides and s- mm, not really animated graphics, but like flipping between different things, you know, characters appear on the screen and it's, it's very interesting. And what's different about Ren even though it's built on top of Pi game, it is really more of a full like you have to download a software development kit an sdk for the thing and then it has its own little special launcher for it so it's a lot more structured in my opinion a lot of the games look and feel the same and and maybe that's good or bad depending on what you're you're trying to do they definitely have a structure to them and you're actually kind of more like writing a movie that's interactive it actually has a script that's one of the names of the files and in it your character says this and you know name of character does this and so forth and you're you're really scripting out everything else so i think it might be really cool if you're interested in wanting to write sort of game design stuff i don't know how much python you'll learn in it you'll definitely be learning renpy so anyway but it's interesting and then it includes branching and decisions and hence it's you know similar to the adventure lib with graphics and stuff on top of it so he built the same sort of game in it And all the games are there. You can get them all from the repo and try them out with the graphics and the sound and everything ready to go. You create a virtual environment and install your requirements, you know, pip install that stuff, except for RenPy, which you will need to, and he has links for it, download a special SDK and so forth to kind of get into it. And then he talks a little bit more about general stuff about game engines, several other ones that he mentioned before on the show that, that these are other potential options. There's some 3D stuff that's out there. And, And then at the very end, he talks about getting assets for games, and he actually uses a couple of them in the game that he created there. So it's a real complete survey, in my opinion. There's a a lot of information here, and
1: I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I I love articles like this. One, there are a huge amount of work to do because you have to play with each one of these pieces. Yeah. And very few people, even those who are deep into the industry, use all of the tools for all of the things. But I find if you're just getting out and and you're just starting in an area and you want to know, you know, how to do something, it's like, oh, okay, uh, I'll read the survey and here are the pros and cons. And uh, that'll help me decide which one I'm going to go down. So this kind of article is very, very helpful with that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and the inclusion of the code that is creating the same game across all of these, these same examples across them, I think really helps to learn how they work differently. And maybe you'll like one over another right away. Um, which I think is good. C Data software, connect, integrate, and automate your data from Python or any other application or tool. At CData, we simplify connectivity between all of the applications and data sources that power business, making it easier to unlock the value of data. Our SQL-based connectors streamline data access, making it easy to access real-time data from on-premise or cloud databases, SAS, APIs, NoSQL, and Big Data. Check out cdata.com
1: to learn more. So what's your first one? I'm starting out with an article by Martin Trinkseni. It's on decorators. And if you've never played with those, they're the at sign syntax thing that's usually sticking at the top of a function. Yeah. Decorators themselves are functions that wrap other functions this allows you to write pre and post conditions on the thing that's being wrapped. So say you want to log when a function is entered and exited, decorator is a good choice for that. So Martin's article is a bit of a bestiary. It kind of describes the different patterns of decorators and how you implement them and what they're good for. So he starts with a basic decorator that takes no arguments and walks you through an implementation of a timer. So the measure decorator wraps a function and that function gets timed and it prints, you know, I'm going to start and this is how long the function took. The second example adds a parameter to a decorator. He demonstrates this through a repeat implementation. So this calls the function that it's wrapping n times where n is whatever you pass to the decorator. And then he delves into the world of wrapping classes. So you can decorate functions, but you can also decorate classes. And the third pattern is an example of that logging example that I was talking about, but it gets applied to every method inside of a class because it's wrapping the class. goes on to cover singletons. A second way of wrapping classes walks you through how Flask uses its routing mechanism, which maps a URL to the function that's the view. Uh, So there's a lot of detail here. So pretty much almost everything you want from a decorator piece. The only thing that's uh, missing is he doesn't actually talk about the how to make a decorator have optional arguments, but that's a pretty rare case. So I don't think it's really that much of a gap here. So yeah, nice and comprehensive and uh, without getting too much into, a lot of decorator articles tend to sort of dive into the, and and this is what a closure is and this is why you want to do it. This one's very much a, sort of a plan right like a, oh you 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 want to time this this is how you would approach it you want to repeat it this is how you approach it so it's a it's a nice little almost tutorial way of approaching the problem yeah
0: like let's apply these things right away and yeah very practical and get
1: going Garana hiela
0: his decorator guide is super detailed and definitely gets into much more nitty-gritty if you're interested but that's been probably one of the most popular things on our site my course on decorators which was like only like half of his article ah, okay <laughs> his tutorial yeah but it's very yeah so there's lots of nice resources on unreal on python for that too but yeah i like the structure of this one it's nice um get in and out all right well the next one that i have is by another guest a recent guest in this case adam johnson he was on to talk about developer experience and he had this book kind of geared around developer experience in Django but we really focused on across all of Python things to make your developer experience a little better and I think he kind of started this as as an ask out into his audience on Twitter he mentions immediately there's a, a really popular blog post that's out there it's I had to look it up it's from August 9th of 2000 by Joel Spolsky on his blog jewel on software and it's called the 12 steps to better code and it's sort of a a list like he calls it the joel test if you wanted to get an idea if your code's ready or if you're going to judge someone's work or or what have you this is maybe a a decent way to look at some of it and you know the first is like do you use source control can you make a build in one step do you make daily builds? Do you have a bug database? Do you fix bugs before writing new code? Anyway, so it's like 12 of these things that that kind of are focuses on like kind of the quality of code. And what Adam wrote is the well-maintained test, 12 questions for new dependencies. The test idea here is whether you and your team are you're sort of deciding on whether you want to add a new package to <laughs> to your setup we were talking about dependencies kind of earlier and in this case like do you want to depend on this new software being added to your project um, how can you kind of make a, a bit of a determinance of is this well maintained is questions are kind of similar in some ways the first is is it described as production ready and this is something we joked about on the show, even the, the idea of a, a zero version. Is this thing sort of a pre-release thing? Is it alpha? Is it beta release candidate and so forth? Some maintainers do stick with a zero version number for quite a while. And so that's not necessarily always a, a guide of that, but it's one of these things to have an idea where if there's a banner on it that says there is an upcoming future stable release, then okay, maybe maybe that's a pause. And then it gets into documentation is there sufficient documentation is there a change log is someone responding to bug reports are there sufficient tests and again in this case you're probably going through github and looking at the code and looking at the repository and saying okay how's this look several things about tests and then a handful of things about continuous integration is there ci is the ci passing and then does it seem like other people are using it, which is kind of interesting one, like and that could be based on stars. It could be based on some other things. There's, I guess some there's a stats. I wasn't familiar with it, but he shows a thing for pi pi stats.org. And then one that I've kind of, this has been my guideline for most projects that I look at. <laughs> has there been a commit in the last year? And that, that to me tells me like, okay, you know, is this thing alive? You know, even if it's like simple stuff, like maybe it's just a bug fix or what have you, you can tell a lot by the dates that are in a repo. And so anyway, it's, it's a neat list. I, I didn't cover them all. He has a, a bunch of other considerations, like the license, the quality, reputation, that the k- kind of idea of skin in the game. He had created an original th- a Twitter thread that it was a good discussion between lots of different people. He lists a lot of the people that commented on there. So yeah, it's a, it's a fairly short one but if you're adding new things, new dependencies and you're thinking about it, this might be a nice gauge for you to kind of walk through when you're considering it.
1: Uh the only thing that I'd sort of add to his list that he doesn't talk about is uh size. Okay. And that's because if it's small enough, and your team is, you know, if if something ends up getting ghosted, if your team's willing to maintain it yourself, and the license fits, then you can do that. Yeah, Uh, I'm not about to do that with something like NumPy. Um, But there's libraries out there that might be a couple hundred lines of code that solve your problem, and you know, you're not really rolling the dice uh, if you can always fork it, right? So I think that's the one of the other considerations that sort of overrides this. But for bigger things, for sure, right? Like if you're trying to make the decision between common packages or whatever one of the things that's pushing me away from one of the ascii libraries that i use is the fact that there hasn't been a commit in years and i know when i found a bug i got zero response yeah so eventually that's going to be a problem so i'm looking at moving some of my code over to a different library for exactly that reason right so so that one's not quite small enough in your own exactly test. well okay. that and i have no interest in trying to maintain end curses because it's just mind-bogglingly throw binary at the terminal and make it do magic things and i don't want to think about it yeah that sounds like a intense project to uh, become a maintainer of suddenly <laughs> what do you got next uh my next one's a real python article and it's brought to you this week by the letter l sesame <laughs> nice. street shout out uh l is for uh leodonis Ramos, our frequent contributor and the article is python's min and max find the smallest and largest values title pretty much gives it away. It's a comprehensive look at the built-in min and max functions. He starts out with the basics, calling the functions with an iterable. That explains how min and max compare the items in an iterable, which has the logical consequence that the items in the iterable have to be comparable. You can mix and match integers and floats, but if you sneak a string in there with a number, you're going to get an exception. This follows the same kinds of rules as a greater than comparison operator. So anything you can compare with A comparison operator min and max will probably be able to handle so if it's all strings no problem all numbers no problem mix and match those and you're going to get a type error instead of using an iterable you can also provide arguments directly to the function so just list them that can be convenient if you're you know quickly have a few variables for example he then goes on to spend some time talking about what it means to use min and max with a string So remember that strings themselves are iterables. So if you pass in a single string, it's going to iterate on the characters in the string. And string comparisons and character comparisons aren't always... Intuitive. They're based on the ASCII or Unicode character values. So you get things like all capital letters are greater than all small letters. So it doesn't always have the, the effect that you might think it does. And this is nothing special to Min and Max. This is just how comparing strings work. Next, he talks about how dictionaries work with Min and Max. So by default, you can iterate over the keys and compare them. But if you want to do things like the values, then you have to change and pass in the values call. Or the other thing you can do is use something like items and it'll compare the key value pair tuples instead. Okay. Which that one I always find interesting because if your keys are perfect match, then it moves on to the value to do the comparison. So they're sometimes squishing everything together gives you an ability to say something's bigger or smaller. So both min and max support optional arguments that change their behavior. The key argument, K-E-Y, uh, allows you to specify a function that modifies the value being compared. So say you had a list of strings that contained numbers. You're on the web and they've been passed in as parameters in a URL, for example. If you pass in int as the key argument, it'll run that on each thing before they're compared. Uh, there's also a default argument, which specifies what to return if there were no values being compared. Uh, it only works if you're passing in an iterable, not an argument list. And this is useful if you've got you know, a variable that's got something in it and you want to have some sort of default behavior in case the variable is empty. Because min and max accept argument lists to compare each of the values, key and default are explicit. You have to name them to use them. You can't just To chuck them on the end uh, so you have to be a little careful with that but otherwise the article then goes on to include sort of a recipe book talking about common uses of min and max things like removing the smallest or larger value finding closest set of cartesian points in a list finding co-primes bunch other stuff and then the final bit talks about the special methods on objects that are used in comparisons that'd be dunder lt and dunder gt for less than and greater than and if you implement those on your object, then your object will work with min and max. And that comes back to things we talked about in the last couple of shows. Yeah, yeah. So loads of detail here, you know, the the quality that we kind of expect from Leodonis. So uh, good little read.
0: Yeah, that's nice. You always look at the top line and go, ah, I know that,
1: <laughs> you <Yes>. know,
0: <laughs> and there's like so much more depth underneath there that you can kind of get into. So yeah, feel free to look at the table of contents before you move along. There, there might be more under the hood that, that you were not expecting, especially in the case of Leodonis' article. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. We mentioned it earlier in the episode as a suggestion for learning about creating games with Python. It's titled Using Pygame to Build an Asteroids Game in Python. The course is based on an article by Pavel Furtek, and in the course, Christopher Trudeau takes you through how to build a complete arcade-style game, including loading images and displaying them on the screen, handling user input in order to control the game, moving objects according to game logic, detecting collisions between objects, displaying text on the screen, and playing sounds. I think building games is a good way to practice your skills, and it's a good exercise to use portions of Python you might not have regularly employed. And like most of the video courses on Real Python, it's broken into easily consumable sections. You get code examples for each stage of building the game. And all RealPython courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. That moves us into a discussion from a slightly different source, a known source, but a different place. I guess I could start it. It's a Twitter thread from Mike Driscoll. Mike's been doing this from time to time just to kind of start a conversation. And this one kind of blew up. There's a lot, a lot of people responding to it, which I thought was interesting. And then it, it kind of thought, well, okay, well maybe this is something we could discuss here. One of the things that I think a lot of people missed in what he wrote is his initial question was which three, and I think he's using like a, an emoji number three there, Python modules or packages do you find yourself using the most? A bunch of people that we've talked to are in this list. Which is kind of cool, and there are some really common answers. Pandas being probably the most common
1: in their lists. Yeah, Mike obviously has a lot of data crunchers following him because a lot of I was surprised. A lot of pandas, a lot of NumPy, a lot of Matplotlib or
0: Jupyter. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that's kind of my background. Like
0: when I was working in this marketing department, I was firing up a jupyter notebooks and crunching data frames with pandas and the only thing i would add is my favorite tool for visualization at the time was bokeh i was learning it and a couple other ones at the same time but that i like that one because it was a it allowed a little more interaction at the time when i was playing with it the things that i find myself using the most now i can't give you a specific number i bounce around a lot probably if you were to do some kind of search across the repositories of stuff that I have on my machine here and playing around with, it probably would be something
1: web-based like Django. So it's interesting that you say that because that's the hole I fell down. Okay. You went and dug in deep, huh? I, so I I started sort of thinking, how do I answer this question besides off the top of my head? So I wrote a little script that found all of my requirement.txt files and totaled them up. And there's stuff that I maintain that is actually my libraries versus stuff that I've forked, uh, which changes the numbers, of course. Okay. And uh, what was interesting, uh, kind of obvious, but it wouldn't have been the answer that I would have given by default. Most of the things that were common across it were support packages. Hmm. So PyFlakes, Coverage, and Pudby, which is my favorite debugger, are by far the most common things. They're they're in like eighty percent of my packages because they're my go-to tools. Right. So it was kind of funny because it, like my my default answer would have been, oh, I'm a Django developer. It would have been Django, but I actually have PyFlakes in four more packages than I have Django. So then I stripped out because I didn't like that answer. I stripped out the support <laughs> stuff. Okay. And then the number one answer was Django, and that kind of made sense. And then the number two and three answer were things no one has ever heard of because they're packages I wrote. And they're little utility packages that I wrote because these are things I do over and over and over again. And they're out there and they're open source, but I doubt anyone has ever installed them but me. I've got 13 instances of Django on my machine in my own repos. And the one package that I have, which is called Django All, as in the tool, there's a it's in eleven of them. Okay. And whale which is a old English word for, if I remember correctly, impaling someone on a stick is a, <laughs> okay. a, a testing utility library that I have. And so my own stuff is kind of popping up. And I, I didn't stop there, so then I'm like, okay, well, but these are my requirements TXT files. All of these things have dependencies, so if you want to come at it from the perspective of what's actually getting used on my machine under the hood, so yeah. I wrote another script that went through and sucked through into the virtual environments and looked what was through all of there, and not surprisingly, uh, number one was six. And that's because okay, that's, the two, to three that's the two to three compatibility thing. And because all these libraries that I've got kicking around still have some 2.7 compatibility, this is showing up everywhere. And the second there was a tie for the second most popular, which was pigments and char debt. OK, uh, and I suspect that's because both of those are used by Sphinx. And because Sphinx is used by just about everybody for all their documentation, those things end up in a lot of places. And then the third one was Certify, which is uh, cer- certificate management yeah, pieces. Okay. And again, because of the web pieces, you're dealing with certs and all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of interesting that in these three different areas, the answers were three completely different things. So it all kind of depends on the perspective of your question. And yeah, on how
0: you uh, do your research.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, and quite frankly, except for the answer Django, I don't know that I would have answered any of these right Like out of those what what i just listed what uh, eight or nine different libraries i would have guessed one of them correctly in your django
0: development are you using i don't know psycho pg is
1: how i want to pronounce it um that database tool uh depends on the client and it depends on the application so for smaller stuff i usually just stick with sqlite Okay. If I get up into a client that's gonna require more hits than that I often attach to uh to Postgres. Yeah. Right. And then you might need something like that. Okay.
0: Yeah, it looks like other ones that were in here, you know, beyond the panda stuff. Requests is is in there. Um fast API is yep. in there. Super popular. PyTest, Flask. And then yeah, I mean there's a handful of other ones. And then some people were listing stuff from the, you know, the Built in the uh, standard library stuff, which I think is interesting, um, like Pathlib. Um, but yeah, I don't know, it's interesting. Uh, the, the other one I saw a lot was Bodo, um, which, or Bado, sorry, I don't,
1: don't want to pronounce it, but anyway, the
0: AWS package was another common
1: one. I yeah, thought. of course. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting even the question, cause it's modules or packages and my brain immediately goes to things I install, but technically, yeah, yeah modules, yeah. You know, OS and Sys are probably going to be there for me. Arg parse, I bet is going to be there. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to fall down the hole again and start writing Python parsing <laughs> things and going <laughs> through all my files for what the import yeah. list is. Yeah.
0: Well, cool. Yeah. So it's kind of fun. I, I thought it was kind of an intriguing you know, thing to kind of look at and, and uh, kind of dive into. And that takes us into
1: projects. And do you want to go first on this one? Sure. So I, I just finished building out a course on SQL Alchemy. And anybody who's listened to us before probably has heard me say the word Django probably really recently. <laughs> yeah. Possibly more than once. So I was kind of interested in digging into this one. It's called Pony, and it's a competing ORM. So it was kind of, because SQL uh, Alchemy was fresh in my mind, and because I know Django at the back of my hand, it was interesting to sort of see another approach at the ORM world. So if you're not from this space, ORM is object relational mapping, and it's a way of uh, accessing databases so that what comes back from a row is an object rather than, say, a straight tuple. Uh, so it allows you to map your classes to objects and tables. So like Django and SQLAlchemy, Pony requires you to inherit from a base class. Theirs is called Entity. And then inside of that class, you declare your mapping. So interestingly, they use references to Python built-in types to define your columns. So if you want to store a integer called age, say, the line would be age equals required and then passing int in as a parameter to the required object. In addition to required, there's another object called set, which you use to declare relationships. So sets can be used to create one-to-many relationships, so foreign keys, and many-to-many relationships by putting the set on both of the objects in a relationship. So the declaration language is pretty clean. In fact, I'd say it's probably cleaner than both Django and SQL Alchemy. So it was uh, kind of nice, so fairly easy to read from that perspective. And then once you've got your objects, you connect to the database and call the generate mapping method. And this is kind of clever in that it can optionally create the tables if they don't exist, but otherwise it sets up the metadata on the objects to relate them to the tables. In fact, this is something that I found kind of uh, in SQL Alchemy, and it may just be because I don't know it well enough, but I found it was one of those things that was a little messy in SQL Alchemy. If you didn't get your metadata table alignment stuff as you started trying to do things across multiple files, it got cranky quickly,, uh, whereas this seemed to be a little more of a discovery kind of mechanism which feels good. There are decorators callback there to wrap functions to manage transactions. And uh, so if a function succeeds, it commits to the database automatically. And uh, if the function throws an exception, then it automatically rolls it back for you, which is a nice little feature. The query language took a little getting used to for me, but I, I understand where they're coming from. They have a function called select for doing queries, uh, but instead of mapping to like SQL syntax, the way you all or Django does, where you do like select or filter or whatever, they allow you to create queries by using generator syntax. Hmm. So the select looks kind of like the inside of a list comprehension. So you might find something that's like P for P in person if P.age is greater than 20, for example. And they take that generator and they translate it into the actual where clauses and the underlying maps to the objects. So it took a little to get my head around it. But for a Python programmer who's not really familiar with the database side, you don't have to really learn a whole bunch of database crap. This is just, oh, I can do it. Yeah. And of course, the challenge with ORMs always is that's how you get into trouble if you don't fully understand it eventually. But if you're doing something simple, it's not a bad idea. They also allow you to expose the underlying SQL, which is nice. So you take a, like the result object from a select, or the query object coming back from a select, and you can call a show method on it, and it'll spit out the actual SQL that's connected to it. So you can debug the SQL if you don't think you've got it right. Uh, and like SQL Alchemy, it's got a mechanism in it so that you can raw, write raw SQL on your objects. The other one that was kind of neat is you can get at the, An object directly via its primary key so let's say if i've got people i could go people square bracket three square bracket and that will return the the person object in the database whose primary key is three okay bit of an operator overloading there which i'm not sure how how clear that is but it is a nice quick and easy way to do it if a nice little shortcut in your code yeah And then the last thing I found was kind of cool is there's also an associated Pony ORM editor as well. So it's a browser-based entity relationship diagram editor, which allows you to generate SQL as well as Pony ORM code. So it's related to the project it's a neat little tool that uh, can help you build things out and you can go a little more drag and drop. So again, if your database chops are a little lightweight, then uh, this might help you save you from making uh, obvious mistakes.
0: Yeah. I, I think that would be handy, especially as you're you know, learning the database and setting it up to kind of visualize it. That sounds cool. Yeah. yeah I had a recent guest on talking about another ORM um, recently uh, called Prisma client. And that was kind of a fun one to kind of just talk about different ways to approach this problem and in that case it's the idea using this tool called prisma that goes across all these different platforms again kind of moving back and forth so yeah i'm excited to to see new takes on this and some of the stuff in pony sounds really cool too
1: like that visual stuff sounds nice to
0: kind of see there
1: yeah yeah and it it seems pretty robust like i hadn't heard of it until i found it uh for the pie coders newsletter and it seems to be in use and uh, lots of stars and stuff you, you get in your own little niche and you don't necessarily see what it's not like i'm i'm not going to go looking for a new orm because i've got two that i'm used to right so yeah so it's always interesting when you're like oh hey there's this thing i've never heard of that seems to be really well done and popular well there you go <laughs> yeah nice
0: so my project is is pretty small but Really handy uh, considering how often that we talk about the Python enhancement proposals here, PEPS. Maybe we just give you a number and instead of having to go search for it, Gerarna Hiela, he's actually created a tool that's pip installable. It's just called pep docs, P E P D O C S. And it allows you from the command line, once it's installed, to type P E P space eight and Boom! There you go. You see pep eight listed out inside your your terminal, having it pop up in the terminal because usually these peps are pretty long, and uh, you know having to scroll back and find it or see where it got cut off. But if you type help, you'll get to see all the different commands that are in there. And one of the ones that I found right away I was like, oh great, I can make this as markdown. Oh great, I can have it save it as a file, and just those two little additional flags like was like awesome. I was like, okay, oh, yeah, cool. This could be really handy. And then he's got a way that you could just import it and then use uh, some basic syntax to maybe work inside of a, a project that you have if you need to look at it. The standardization of the way peps are presented online helps this project in, in a lot of ways. But it, it, I think it's just kind of a neat little project and maybe a good way to look at how a project can be structured because it's fairly small. He uses Flit as his setup tool and... Yeah, just a, it's a nice little simple project, in my opinion, simple in the sense that there's not a whole lot of code to it, but he's been working on it for a little while. Looks like a couple of years, just recently, you know, kind of updated it and you found it in the PyCoders list. And I was like, oh, this looks cool. And, you know, it's nice to be able to just type in that number and and see what's going on with Python enhancement proposals.
1: But and never underestimate the power of anything on the console because as soon as you've got that now I can pipe it through grep and I can
0: yeah sort Search, and yeah.
1: find snippets and use more and right there's all sorts of things uh, that that become powerful simply by being able to chain things together the the, the pipe operator in, in Unix em- environments is your friend
0: yeah one of the newer things that I, I'm seeing more often in these peps is code examples. And so this would be a nice way to get the code examples out of it too, to kind of try things and, and so forth. So yeah, it's nice to be able to have that stuff ready at your fingertips. So a nice little command line tool. Well, I think that takes us to the, to the end. Thanks for gathering a whole bunch of new
1: Pycoders coders goodness for us this week. Do you sure you don't want to say something controversial about the Walrus operator just so that we're consistent? No, I'm, I'm good. Okay. Well, <laughs> Next week it
0: is. All right. Uh, We'll find some new controversy to uh, explode into this world. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Christopher. Talk to you soon. Don't forget, you can get simple cloud data connectivity to SaaS, Big Data, and NoSQL from Pandas, SQL Alchemy, Dash, and Petal. Learn more at cdata.com. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea.
1: I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.